Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this conversation is Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob's the author of several wonderful books, all designed to help you navigate the messy waters of bringing your ideas into the world. He's best known for his 2013 book, The Mom Test, which is now my go-to book on how to approach talking to people to see if your idea is actually worth building. If you've heard of the ideas of the Lean Startup or customer development or just user research, this has become my go-to book. It's the one I recommend the most. Rob's currently focused on supporting indie nonfiction authors with software and a thriving authors community. And in this conversation, we talk about the realities of how to test your ideas and more importantly, how to discern if an idea is a good fit for you, not just for the market. How to choose your customer and tell the difference between a good customer and a bad customer early on. And frankly, how to discern what's most important to you and not just the idea that you choose, but how you choose to build it. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. There are a few people more fun to banter about these topics with than Rob. So without any further ado, please enjoy the one and only Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob, officially, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thanks for being here. I'm doing great. Good day. Lots of writing, lots of thinking. That's how I like to spend today. But uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be hanging out with you for the end of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm such a such a fan of your work over the years and we've gotten to know each other a little bit these past few weeks. Um and I'm just it's such so so much fun to jam with you today. And you know, one of the things that I really I think it'd be a fun place to start is you were just saying like, you know, you've you've had you've had a great day. You you wrote twelve thousand words, you're gonna get the that, new that, draft. That's not all today. That's uh, that's where the main okay. <laughs> I was like, that is a, that that would be a wild day. day. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that is a wildly productive day. Uh, but you know, you more than most people I come across seem to have constructed a life for yourself very intentionally. And you've used entrepreneurship and writing and creativity as not just like a a professional through line, but like a real lever into that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome, first of all. So kudos to you and I admire that about you. But I think my question would be, where does that come from for you? Like, you know, you you clearly have this ability to think independently about like, well, what does Rob want? (laughs) And then go make it happen. I'd I'd say it comes from being wildly unhappy in most traditional career paths uh, and desperately (laughs) failing around for some sort of alternative. And I was reading uh, Sherry Walling's book recently. It's called The, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And I just started it. <laughs> it's, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, she talks a lot about these two-sided values, like entrepreneurs want freedom, but the flip side of freedom is you don't know your exact path, so that's anxiety-inducing. Like Entrepreneurs are fiercely independent. They want to think that that is like, harder to connect with people because you don't have as much shared ground, so that, that creates a sense of, of isolation. And that's okay with me. And it, this is one of the points she makes in, in, in her book, is that you're going to feel these things, and that's okay. They're not bugs. They're, they're sort of like the other side of the coin. And obviously you want to manage them. You don't want to be made miserable by them. And reading that totally reframed it. I was like, oh yeah, I am a bit anxious. I, but like that's because I'm doing the things I want to do. I'm trying to carve out a you know a path that hasn't been well defined. For me, writing was just the, the simplest thought experiment ever. I go, if I was already retired, if if money wasn't an issue, like how would I be spending my days? I would be spending the mornings reading an interesting book, play a bit of chess, drink my coffee, do a few hours of writing until I'm tired of it. You know, whatever's interesting to me, whatever I'm thinking about, have a nice lunch and then hang out with friends, have some beers, play some board games, have some laughs and repeat again the next day. I was like, well, that's not a super expensive dream, right? And so then I just shifted my focus and I go, well, how do I get there as quickly as possible? And 
So I did it partly by boosting passive income. For me, that was through through books, through long-lasting books and recommendable books. So I didn't need to do a lot of hands-on marketing. And then also by reducing expenses. And you know, now my expenses are, are, are raising, but now I'm in a slightly stronger situation. But when I was in my kind of late 20s, I was like, ah, you know, this this sucks. That's how do I get to that life ASAP? And so that, that's where I was oriented. And the little trick I found, uh, which finally tipped me over the line, because I've been living in London right downtown in East London is shortage, quite expensive rents. I was like, wait a minute. I've always wanted to learn to sail and to live in a boat and to, to sail, right? Didn't you like rebuild a boat or something? Yeah, well, this was the beginning of that trigger. And so I ran the numbers and I was okay. like, wait a minute. I could get a boat that I could live on for like four grand. All I need to do, learning to sail is going to cost a grand and a half. I don't know how much repairing an old boat costs, but surely it's not that much. And so I, I just <laughs> went for it. And I... I, I Moved out of my London apartment, learned to sail, bought a boat on eBay without even seeing it, just like buy it now. <laughs> and at the time, it was the funniest experience I'd had because at the time, uh, I, I was starting to sell the mom test and it was like a PDF. And I had to pay for this this uh, eBay thing basically with PayPal, right? And so I was like, wow, I just turned PDFs into a boat. And it was the most <laughs> surreal moment. <laughs> what is this? Weird <laughs> alchemy I'm doing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I spent three years, yeah, it was like six months in the boatyard repairing it because I had a ton of problems that I didn't know about. Because obviously I completely rushed into it like an idiot. But uh, I, I loved it. I just did six months of manual labor, eight, 10 hours a day, just rebuilding the hull, learning how to rebuild an engine, doing all this stuff. And wow. three years. And I ended up bringing it from London to Barcelona through the French canals into the Mediterranean. Spent a bunch of summers like that. And that was also transformational for me because I realized I don't want to be retired. And it's yeah. such a funny moment, right? Where you've oriented your whole career toward achieving this goal. You get it. You're like, I'm kind of bored. You're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a buddy needed help with a project. One of my previous co-founders and my current co-founder also, uh, Devin. And so we, we hustled together and had this real intense week or two. I was just helping him hit this deadline or accomplish this thing. And afterwards, I was like, man, I haven't felt that good in years. That was like amazing. <laughs> like, this and is fun. I, I had this big existential crisis. I was like, wait, do I want to work? You know, it, it's like I built my whole life around not wanting to work. What the hell? Uh, I? Like, well, maybe I do if it's on the right things with the right people in the right way. So, you know, settled down in Barcelona. Now I'm up in the mountains near the, uh, the Pyrenees. And uh, yeah. Yeah, having a blast building software, building community, writing more books, uh, you know, working with, with buddies and having a grand time. Hundred percent. So there's so many fun things in there that we're going to jam on in this conversation. But I think you know what, what I'm just listening to you. It sounds like there's an idea in the background that you've gotten your hands around for you, right? Because it's always a personal definition. Um, and it's this idea of like enough, mm. right? And like what is what is my enough? Like what is it that I actually want? And and I don't know about you, but that like what do I want has been one of the like that question has dogged me in my life more than almost <laughs> any other question that I can think of. So how did you get there? Like, how did you figure that out for yourself? One thought is I think it needs to be discovered, not decided. Uh, you know, you've seen how miserable lottery winners get or, or a lot of retirees. And it's because they've, they've always drawn so much purpose from what they've been forced to do or from the structure. And, and suddenly they're in like a purpose vacuum where they have to make every decision about their day. Nothing's being forced on them. And they're like, ah, and, and they haven't found that like internal source of, of purpose or structure. For me, I get it from writing. Uh, mm. Some people get it from like, if they're the digital nomads, they get it from the traveling and the exploring and meeting new people. So like some people get it from winning, you know, like fine. Yeah. That doesn't motivate me that much. But uh, for me, the where I'm happiest is, is uh, an interesting project where I'm excited to learn and research and, and, and write and think and share. I really get a tremendous amount of joy from figuring things out. And, mm -hmm. and 
it's one of the reasons that I've been so suboptimal with my writing and my author platform. Because as soon as I get good at something and people start yeah. wanting to follow me, I'm like, well, I figured it out. Time to move on. So <laughs> it's like, I just can't build a good platform. Because like, as soon as I can, I'm bored by it. You ever read that book, Rocket Fuel? No. So there's this book by oh god Gino Wickman I want to say and it's it's describing the kind of the exact problem you're talking about that so many entrepreneurs classically have of like we love solving the thing and then we're like cool next and it's like and the whole point is essentially like you should have somebody on your team who is the opposite of you who wants to do the stuff like once you're bored because there's a lot of apparently it doesn't make any sense in my worldview but apparently there's people who love that yeah we had uh, one of my previous companies we were doing it was like an education agency we we're setting up uh, when the accelerator and like startup wave was sweeping Europe, we were kind of bringing American startup education best practices to Europe and helping them set up uh, the accelerators and the government support programs and all that. And on that team, we we'd hired someone who was just a real hustler. He was meant to be our, our like you know salesperson, go get him and all that. Well, not hired. That's the wrong word. Uh, added as a late co-founder. He had an equal uh, ownership share to the rest of us. <laughs> and so there were four of us, and one was entirely impact driven. Two of us were like craft and product driven. And then the third one was pure scale driven. And it sounded great in theory, <laughs> but in practice, every yeah. strategic decision was just impossible because we all had these equally valid worldviews. We all understood the other people's worldviews. And yet we all wanted to make different decisions, right? And and we ended up fragmenting the company. Yeah. And uh the impact person and the scale person each continued with it for a while as like separate companies heading in different directions, following their priorities. And the other two of us, Devin and myself, were just like, all right, that was enough. Three years was plenty. Let's you know, go back to books or products or sitting around or whatever we want to do. I love that. You know, it's funny. That's a perfect uh, transition point. One of the things I really wanted to talk about, and, and this is picking up on a conversation you and I have had pieces of before this, before this conversation. You wrote a piece uh, called The Shape of an Idea. Mm-hmm. And you laid out something in that that you laid it out more concisely than I have seen many people uh, do so over, over the years. And I'd love you to talk about this sort of triangle model. You're, you're, I know you're still playing with it and it's not finalized, but I found it to be a super interesting way to think through um, choosing things and choosing paths for oneself. I'd love to hear you talk about that. The idea of it is that no idea is good or bad in a vacuum. It's good or bad within the context of your life, your goals, your constraints right now. So it's not a good or bad idea. It's a good or bad idea for you right now. And this came out of getting so burned out in my first company, the one we went through Y Combinator with and then raised subsequent funding and had big customers because it was an idea that was a brilliant idea for somebody else. Or maybe <laughs> it would even be a brilliant idea for me now, 15 years afterwards. But at that time, it was a terrible idea for me. And I felt like I was working really hard to build my own prison or, or to build a job I hated. And then once you're in it, you, you know, you've got investors, you've got employees, you've got kind of a responsibility to keep going. And that's what really gives the trap its teeth. Because with bootstrapping, or if you're working by yourself, or it's a small team, you have the luxury of stopping. And once you raise investment and you, you, you ask a bunch of employees to quit their jobs and, and believe in you, you you're, you're giving up that freedom to quit, which is a big thing. And I, I don't think that's fully appreciated. And so when I started thinking about ideas, it's like... I really try to remain aware of that spreadsheet trap. Looks amazing on a spreadsheet, looks terrible within the context of my life. And so the, the three angles I look, I start with the goal. And so I bucket that into 
not like in the future, but right now, in the next few years, during building this company, are you more oriented by, I, I want my shot at the big game, so I'm oriented by scale, I, I'm all about upside? Is it about reliability or success or uh, predictability? Like, I don't need the billion dollar possibility, but I need like a 90% chance that this is going to work because I got bills to pay, you know, and I got kids to take care of, but mm-hmm. I still want to do it on my own terms. And then the last one, I call it freedom, but it's really about minimizing uh, your constraints. So this could be about minimizing urgency, minimizing having to be in a certain place at a certain time. Mm-hmm. So for example, some cafe and bar businesses have high uh, predictability or reliability, but you're sacrificing your scale because they're hard to franchise, mm-hmm. that type of like bespoke cafe. And you're completely sacrificing sure. your freedom. You're like committing to be there every day for the next however many years. But you're 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 maximizing your predictability. Not for every cafe, obviously. A lot of them are very high risk, but there's certain types. So and, and I think that is a starting point. And what I've noticed for myself is that I've fluctuated through all three priorities at different stages of my career. When I was young and hungry, I wanted to scale. Let's go. I don't care what the risk is. I want to, you know, I want to be on the cover of the magazines. And we kind of did. We got on America's the boats. Yeah. <laughs> so we just went for it. And then after that, I was like, I gotta pay the bills. <laughs> right. So it's like, I just need this to work. I am broke. And then after that, I was like, all right, I did it, but that sucked. I want my freedom. Like, I want to go enjoy life. I've been suffering for too long. Uh, I don't want to wait till I'm rich. I want it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is actually fun to have a bit of money. So it's like, I, I've noticed myself uh, moving and it's been really helpful to know that that's a, a moving target, like you said earlier, and, and to always have that as the guiding light for idea selection. Then after that, it's about constraints and resources and you respect your constraints and if possible, you leverage your resources. So an example of a resource that, that I have and what I don't is like, I do not have design skills like whatsoever. I don't mm-hmm. have any list or audience. Like some people, they build their whole careers. It's a really strong, like indie creator model. Is you basically invest early in the compounding resource of a list or an audience, mm-hmm. yep. and then all of your future businesses just leverage that resource, right? Cool. Uh, for me, I don't have that. What I do have is the ability to get taken relatively seriously uh, in one-on-one discussions. So that mm-hmm. unlocks partnership models. That unlocks access to really good co-founders who bring resources that I'm individually missing, that unlocks big enterprise sales businesses and partnership-driven businesses. So that like resource, which in my case is an, an unusual skill or like a, a piece of personal credibility, uh, informs the type of businesses that will, will feel easy to me, but would feel very difficult for most other founders. So then mm. that gives me an edge, which compensates for some of my other weaknesses or shortcomings. So. That's how I think about resources. Um, another way is like your constraints. So there's calendar time and there's clock time. Like I need this to be paying the bills in six months is an example of calendar time. Uh, clock time is like I've only got two hours a day to work on this, or like every day I need to be picking my kids up from school at four p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, other constraints like location, and this could be like I'm stuck in this country, or like I refuse to be stuck in this country. Like, like, <laughs> there, there's, yeah. you know, there's different ways, but as you acknowledge this, and then you look at ideas, you go like, "Oh, this is a great idea, but it really doesn't fit our constraints around like whatever, like needing to be able to take three months off for paternity or maternity leave, and, and to apply yeah. that to everyone on the team." So then you go like, "Okay, is there a way that we can adjust this idea or this business model? Can we find some version of it which better leverages our resources, achieves our goal, and adheres to our constraints? Or is the whole thing just you know we're we're just out of luck and we need to trash it?" 
Yeah, no, what I really appreciated about this is, is a few things. But first of all was, you know, there is this certainly since the, over the last 10 years, maybe 15, right? The dominant narrative in entrepreneurship has been that coming out of Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area mm-hmm. of scale, you know, scale at all costs, like billions are bust, unicorn or nothing, etc. Um, which isn't true, right? But it's one of those things that it's like it's it, it, once once you've been swimming in that water for a while, you forget that there's all these other options. And so I really appreciated that you were laying it out that way. I was just saying, like, hey, by the way, other options here. One of the the big ones we chatted about a bit, like one of the other kind of dominant worldviews is effectuation, which came out of a researcher who looked at uh, 300 examples of basically entrepreneurs who had had multiple back to back bootstrap successes, not strictly bootstrap, but it's skewed in that direction. So basically everyone says, you know, there's whatever crazy failure rate for business. And he says, look, like this group of 300 entrepreneurs, they've, they've had like three to five successes in a row. And he wasn't worried. They didn't have to be billion dollars. They just had to be successes, right? So more around the reliability or the predictability. And he pulled out these, these very, uh, from a, like a lean startup hypergrowth perspective, very counterintuitive principles, things like um, focus on your downside, not your upside. You know, like ensure that if this doesn't work, you're still able to easily start your next business because you haven't trashed your savings. Uh, partner early. Like, don't worry about vertically integrating. Don't worry so much about the moats. Worry about like how much can you find good partners for, even if that like reduces some of the value. And it, it's a very and it's all around optimizing for chance of success rather than size of success. It never really caught on in the same way as, as lean startup, but it, it's powerful. And in some ways, it falls into the same mistake that you just pointed out, which is it's assuming it knows what the entrepreneur cares about. So all of lean startup advice, all of modern startup advice assumes that you want maximum scale and that you have essentially no constraints and that you'll build the resources as you go. Like effectuation assumes that like all you want is maximum security or predictability, let's say. Um, and, and it's like, it, it's interesting, right? Uh, and I, I, I wish that more entrepreneurs, I wish that I in my first business had been able to make those decisions a little bit more for myself. One of the things I think was that's really interesting about combining those ideas of effectuation and then sort of a, a, you know, the idea selection that you were talking about. And it, we, were, we were speaking about this before we were recording, but there's a little bit of this idea of like, there's there's choosing customers and markets, and then there's designing businesses to go into said markets. And I think what we've been talking about is a little bit more of the latter of like, okay, I'm going to go after this thing. And how do I want to do that in a way that is works for me and makes it a good idea for me? <laughs> Again, emphasize, <laughs> emphasize the, the personal fit nature of it. Um, I remember you said it as, as plainly as I've ever heard it said on one of our former conversations where... You said you're like, look, you know, an idea can be good without it being right for you. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's super. <laughs> yep, he's right. That, that's the nice part about being an investor is you get to you get to contribute to all of those ideas that are great for someone else, but not for you. The problem with being an entrepreneur is you can only do like one at a time, so you kind of got to be a little bit more choosy. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because you know one of the things that that seems. That you seem especially good at, at least from from where what I have seen is choosing things that are a personal fit for you. I'd love to hear about how you select what to work on as opposed to designing the way you're gonna work on it. Two biggest things is uh, if it's, I mean, for my books and my personal projects, it's things that I'm just fundamentally excited about. Like writing a book is a two year journey. 
especially if it's something that you're, you know, you're learning about, you're researching, you're doing original interviews, you're talking to people. And then there's bits like the beta reading and the refinement and talking to readers and being like, hey, did this work for you? Like, did you try it? Let me, you know, like all the stuff we do for user testing apps or, or, or websites you need to do for a book. And the same is true of a business. Like any of it is like, do I care enough <laughs> about this topic for that to be my top of mind thought for the next however many years? Mm-hmm. And, and then the time horizons matter. There's some things that I'm excited to think about for three months, but not three years and certainly not three decades. Mm-hmm. And so the longer the time horizon of the idea, and you can tell you, oh, this is going to be a grind. We're going to need to do all these things and break into this industry and build this mode and get this credibility and all this technology and R&D. You're like, all right, this is like a 20-year project. And I recently took it, the stuff I'm doing now with the, for uh, independent authors and publishing, we view that as a 10 year project when we talk about it among the team. And, and that was the conversation we had when we went into it. Cause before then, Devin and I were both, we'd kind of done our big companies and we we're like, uh, it succeeded, mine fails. <laughs> but like we, we, we'd done those long grinds, right? And, and we were very, much opportunistic mm-hmm. about taking little like multi-month things that could be done and then done, <laughs> done and done with. And, and, and so this yeah. one, we're like, wow, this is a 10 year project. Do we want to do this? Are we up for this? Are we, and we said, yeah. And part of the way we mitigated that, that, that tension is by saying, okay, can we set it up so that there's no winner take all dynamics, which allows us to go slower and if we're able to go slower, then we can work fewer hours per week because there's not as much urgency. And then also to maintain that, that ability to self-pace, you also need to avoid raising funding. So we go, okay, we need no winner-take-all dynamics and it needs to be bootstrappable. Is there a way to shift this model into those constraints so that we can feel comfortable with the necessary time horizon? Uh, so... That was the thinking there, and it's been really fun actually, and it's allowed us to think differently about some of the assets. Like I started building a YouTube audience for no reason. Well, not for no reason, because of these time horizons. I was like, oh, if I'm going to spend ten years here, it makes sense to start building this audience. And so I'm now I'm at like one and a half thousand. Woo, big celebrity! (laughs) But like, yay! They will link all this stuff. That used to be zero, and it had been zero for like fifteen years because I never felt like I was really Mm -hmm. committing to a space for the the long term. Uh, In terms of uh, other rules of thumb, uh, picking customers I like hanging out with is really important for me. I have a lot of trouble doing things Mm. because I'm supposed to do them, and the only hack I found is to. Set up a situation where the things I I should do are also the things I want to do. And in the case of this business, yep. like, do I like talking to authors about their book? Almost always, because anyone who's willing to spend you know multiple yep. years on some topic is someone who's got something fascinating to say. And, and then they're also creators, right? They're they could be spending every morning doing I don't know whatever like what everyone else does, but instead they're like waking up two hours early to do some writing, you know, before they have to do the rest of their days. Just mm-hmm. like, man, that's a cool person. That's someone I like hanging out with. I did the same before with, uh, I love hanging out with professors. Professors are hilarious. So when I was building software for universities, I got to hang out, hang out with all their innovation professors, tech transfer, spin outs, IP research. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And when that's the case, things like customer development, sales, customer understanding, customer support, like all of it becomes so easy because you're just, that's the exact same mm-hmm. conversation you have with your friends. You go, oh, wow, like, mm-hmm. it seems like your job is giving you like a nightmare right now. Tell me about it. Help me understand that. Like, what are you going to do about mm-hmm. it? 
that's a perfect sales conversation or a customer learning conversation. It's also the way we already engage with everyone we actually like. And when you've got customers you don't like, you go, oh, question one of 20. Have you seen my very impressive solution? Yeah, you like yeah. immediately transform into asshole robots. <laughs> and it just removes the humanity from business. And it's like, I've got the skills, but I don't have the willingness to put myself through that, you know? So... <laughs> totally. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting things about that. But, you know, the... And by the way, for all the stuff about like idea vetting, everybody, please, for the love of God, go buy Rob's book, The Mom Test, <laughs> read it, do what it says. It's really, really freaking good. And, and that is how I originally, you know, how we originally encountered each other. But the thing that um, is so interesting to me about what you just said there, I was going to ask you, well, how did you decide to work on nonfiction authors? Right. And there's my assumption is that you said, well, what customer, who, who do I understand? Who do I like? Mm-hmm. And you're a nonfiction author. And so that seems like a pretty natural fit. And I was like, oh, well, how do you know you want to work on something for 10 years? That's a question that mm-hmm. I'm not sure. So I'd love to hear that. But then there's, you also at the same time sort of presented a, a, a counterexample of like university professors. And I don't, I don't think you were a university professor. So I'm curious, how did you choose that customer? Before I got into startups, I, I was originally heading down the academic path. I dropped out of my master's. I had a full ride at uh, Georgia Tech. Doing actually, I, I had two uh, full scholarships, which is kind of redundant because you know it's not like they give you the extra money. But I, <laughs> yeah, like, nowhere there's extra for them is a great deal. <laughs> but I, I just couldn't say no to things. So I, I had like one scholarship for research, which was in uh, experimental game design, like using games to teach morality was my thing. I thought that like it's really hard for kids to like oh, cool. read Plato, but I, I thought that they might be able to like play a game that presented them with interesting moral choices. And anyway, that's what my master's research was. And, and a twisted version of that that was way more commercialized became what we pitched to YC, uh, which again like ended up turning into okay. pure advertising tech, as things so often do. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, yep. I knew professors. I had a lot of like professor friends from that time of like flirting with academia and being on the track uh, and. So I felt it very easy later. And a lot of my friends were, you know, getting PhDs or doing that stuff. In London, it was actually, it came through blogging. Uh, back then I was blogging. I, uh, I ended up stopping because my interest changed and I deleted the list because I didn't know what to do with the list when I was no longer interested in the topic. One of the readers of that mm. blog, a fellow named Tom, uh, who's now a great investor, he, he sold a, um, uh, an AI like kind of machine learning company for quite a lot of money and, and is doing great. But he responded to a blog post and he's just like, Hey, I read this blog post. It's relevant to my PhD research. You want to come in and talk to my, uh, you know, my PhD advisors and me and we'll, you know, swap some notes. So I did. And we ended up co-founding a business together. And that was the LinkedIn because it would have been hard, even though I like and enjoy hanging out with professors. It's hard. We're in a different country. I was in London, whereas I went to university in Atlanta. The, the British university system is very different from the American one. It would have been hard for me to get started. But the fact that he was in the door already as a, mm, yeah. uh, getting his PhD, that kicked the door open. And then the fact that I enjoyed hanging out with them and enjoyed talking to them and listening to them and understanding them, he opened the door. But then I really enjoyed having the conversation. So that's what made that work. And that one stopped just because of life stuff. He ended up having a, a baby and deciding that that was more important than the business, which I completely agreed with because we were very early in the journey. We were Fair still in that stage where we had the freedom to quit. <laughs> we had like a, just a handful of customers who were like, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll gracefully ramp them down and uh, move on to other life priorities. Uh, so as for how I chose this particular business, the one for, for authors, let me describe the model real quick because it's a, it's a cool model. So yeah, 
Yeah, I want to talk about author community. So yeah, the, in a there's a here. community that's like the backbone of it. Um, actually, let me roll back even further. Ten years ago, uh, I, I did exactly what you said. I, I have lists of like these are customers and industries that I think I have some connection, credibility, interest, whatever. And these are like bits I have edge and advantage in, and you, you kind of like remix these lists and you return to them every couple of years. I do it about once a year, uh, and I'm just like, oh, is there something new? Do I see this differently? Are there ideas here that I'm excited about? Um, and, and I maintain those lists and occasionally I scratch things off, but more often I add to them. Uh, so forever I've been like, man, authors, that would be such a cool segment. And, and after writing my first book, Mom Fest 2013, I was like, so many problems, such a bad industry. Like publishers are so out of date. They so deserve to be disrupted. <laughs> I was also really looking at the textbook industry. It's like, man, if any industry deserves to be disrupted, it's textbooks. But they have an insane moat yeah. in the form of uh, on the ground sales teams. They go to every university, like a person shows up with a catalog and they go, which courses do you want to teach? And they just check things off. If you've ever seen a convenience store getting restocked by their supplier, it's the exact same process. And then they've also got the advantage that IBM used to have, which is like nobody gets fired for running a class on one of the like two or three like monopoly textbook companies uh, curriculums. And then they provide a lot of extra like the lesson plans, the default slides, the exams. A lot of professors mm. choose to roll their own, but they always have that. So it's like it gives them a really good foundation, a starting point. So you go, how do you compete with a textbook company? It's not just writing a textbook; it's over overcoming that entire ecosystem. Uh, and so I was like, man, I would love to go after them, but I don't know how to do it. Um, I would love to build tools for authors, but then authors have a different problem where authors go through like a one to two year journey, and along the way, they have these sharp pain points data reading, interior layout, like figuring out if people want to buy it, like figuring out who to trust, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go through it like once. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I have a really good idea to help with beta reading. But how do I catch an author who only does it once at that exact moment in their journey? Right? Because uh, normally what happens is they go, mm-hmm. oh, I need to do that. And then they come up with a solution. And then they're like, the window of decision making is gone. So it doesn't matter how, how good your solution is. And when you think about all the common advice around content marketing, building a list, uh, that tends to be for problems that people keep having day after day. So like you can build a list around marketing or social yep. impact because people keep thinking about the same thing forever for their whole careers. Uh, you can't build a, a list around this sort of like discrete one-time problem because people have it that they don't. They don't want a list. They want a solution, right? They're not reading your blog or subscribing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. I couldn't figure that out. It's all rattling around in my head. And then one of my friends in uh, in Barcelona, Veronica, she, she she was starting to write her first book. It was about people using uh, microdoses of LSD as an alternative to uh, like Adderall and other nootropics and all of that as like productivity and focus stuff. She used to be a chemist and she was running like original mm-hmm. research to try to try to find this out or like understand how it worked. Um, and she goes, "Hey, Rob, you wrote books before, like." Can we meet? Grab a coffee? Give me some advice? I was like, yeah. Before we do, just so that you know, the conversation is more about you than me just lecturing to you for an hour. Like, here's some some quick advice to read first. So I just bashed out like, do this, don't do this, watch out for this. This is something to think about. This usually works. This usually doesn't. Turned into like a big long email bullet list, like ten pages probably, just like just a brain dump of like top of my wow. advice, completely unstructured. We showed up to the meeting. It's just like wow, we had a really productive meeting because she was just asking questions, talking about her book. This is now a formalized part of my book writing process, which is like the coaching conversation. So before you write the book, you teach the book. 
if your book is promising to help someone with that. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I did that. And then afterwards, like yeah, I took sure. notes on what she asked me back in return. I clarified it with another thing. Now it's gone from 10 pages to 30 pages. And this isn't me in like dreamland. It's me just yeah. responding to a real reader's uh, situations. And as I went through the beta rating and got serious about that book, at a certain point, I'm like, oh, I can't really do this in a blog post. It's too big. I need to make a book. That was called Write Useful Books. And I was like, I'm doing this. And the response I was getting from beta readers, I was like, wait a minute. This solves that business model problem that I had like 10 years ago. Because like it gives me the credibility and it gives me the early awareness so that when they get to that pain point later in their writing journey, they already know the solution. And so I can use the book to educate mm-hmm. people about their future problems so that when they reach them, like I'm already top of mind. And then I was like, okay, so that gives mm-hmm. me like the, 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 the awareness, the top of funnel for the software. But then there's still this long gap and a lot of people like fall off the wagon or they don't continue writing their books. And I was like, I need these authors to succeed with their books in order for them to reach the point where they need to do beta reading. And I was like, how do I do that? And I was like, oh, it's like an outcome-oriented community. And the community can help with habit change and accountability and basically act as like the retention, accountability, and follow-through layer between the time when they read the book and when they're ready to use the software. Then I was like, wait a minute, once I have that, like I can create so many other like valuable additions and add-ons along this customer journey from their goal to their success. Uh, one we played with, we put it on ice mm-hmm. just because we don't have the capital for it right now, was a publishing imprint where we would specifically publish unproven, unplatformed first-time authors from within our own mm. community. Because we're like, the problem that publishers have is they don't have a way oh, nice. to evaluate first-time authors. Whereas they're coming to our writing groups, we're watching them, we're seeing the beta feedback on their manuscript. Like we can make a... You can tell if they're getting better. Exactly. And we can we can tell the reaction to their book and the process they're using. Are they being rigorous or are they just like pounding down some words and forgetting about it? Yeah. So we uh, we we published um, uh, a pair of authors, Adam and Bob, and uh, just to like understand what the process looked like end to end. Great time, and we're like, all right, we need way more money than we have right now, and and we want to stay bootstrapped. So we we put it on ice temporarily. But we'll we'll get back to it. That makes total sense, right? Especially as you as you do achieve some scale later on and you have the capital to deploy into a portfolio, right? You don't know which of those is going to hit. And so you need the capital to sustain a whole portfolio. But that makes that makes total sense. Um, so I love this idea uh, that I came across recently that you were just speaking to of an outcome-oriented community. And you did a really interesting short video that... And again, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. But you did a really interesting like 5 or 10-minute video on outcome-oriented communities. But talk to me a little bit more about that idea because you know everything right now, you know, you have a background in the world of education and providing sort of educational related interventions. How do you think about an outcome-oriented community? And, and I guess maybe start off with what does that actually mean? It's the groups where people join for a, for a shared purpose. So they're joining to like prepare for a marathon or to start a business or to create a side project that gets to a thousand MRR or to whatever, get settled in a new country or learn a language or an instrument or build a habit or kick a habit, like whatever. There's some purpose. And you can always tell it's like, this community is going to help you with this. A lot of businesses offer them where some well, some poorly, where they say like, hey, you're using our product for your life, for your business. You should join our customer community and we'll help you get better with it. We will help you level up with that mm-hmm. product. So either the community can be the product or the community can enable customer success with the product, which makes them more sophisticated, more evangelical, etc. It's kind of similar to what a coach or a trainer or a, a consultant does, where you're helping people to follow through and execute and stay on track toward a, a long-term, big, lofty goal. Um, 
a great example is uh, Drew Riley's community, Trends.vc, and it basically helps people stay open to new business models, market segments, and opportunities that they wouldn't normally have thought about. Or So it kind of helps them build the research habit and the, the ideation habit. Um, and they've built a lot of cool stuff on that. He has 1,000 members at $300 a month. So that's like a $300,000 community run by, by primarily Drew. And he got there really quickly. And it's because they've, they've anchored it around this, this outcome. Whereas when communities feel terrible, at least to me, it's like I, I join and they're like, hey, build your business, change your life. And I show up and they're like, well, we got a great bunch of great people here. Figure it out. They're not taking you anywhere. Yeah. It's like if you went to go climb Everest and they're like, yeah, come here. We're going to help you climb Everest. And you show up and they're like, well, there's the mountain. Have fun. It's like, what? <laughs> like, which path should I take? Like, what do I need to do? Where's base camp? And they're like, I don't know. There's other people here. Yeah, you can figure it out. It's like, come on. That, that's not an outcome oriented community. That's just like a mess. That's just like getting a bunch of people in the room and letting them. <laughs> that sucks. And I feel like that's how 90% of the like of the fly right now being started by businesses. Their, their, their marketing page is outcome oriented. But when you get there, it's just like an unfacilitated networking event. It's like, that's some garbage. Uh, and so yeah. what it's all about is it, it's yeah. about you go. How do I create a set of actions such that when my members take these actions in return, they're going to get meaningful wins. They're going to be like, wow, I'm getting closer to my goal. I'm doing it. Um, and that gives them more belief in the community and the community's process. Um, like a, a super common example is CrossFit. Like you go, eh, I'm not so sure about this. All right, I'll give yeah. it a try. You show up, you're like, wow, like I did a lot of stuff I didn't know I could do. And like, Two months later, you're like, wow, like, yeah, I can throw this tire around. One of, one of the cute things they do that is so <laughs> obvious is like, um, since it's these physical things, your progress is super measurable. Like, if you're working out on a machine, you go, well, there's one notch higher. Like, but you're like, oh, I can throw the big tire yeah. now. I couldn't throw the big tire before. It's like a karate belt. Yeah. It's like this super measurable external signal of your, your internal progress. Um, for us, it's things like word count. It's like, yeah, I did the work. Yeah, my manuscripts at 10,000 words, 20,000 words. So our whole community is built around helping people to build the writing habit, to build the writing in public habit, to build the iteration habit. Um, mm. And it, it's like, it's super hard. But if you can do it, then you're basically creating this positive behavior change and, and you're enabling people to move closer to the, their, these big goals that they signed up for. And they're like, yeah, it's working. And, and it, it creates such evangelical fans. And there's so much opportunity mm. to change people's lives for the better there. So to me, it feels like coaching or consulting, but with like a little bit less personalization and a lot more scale. And I think a lot of what's currently being advertised yeah. as cohort-based courses should actually be restructured as an outcome-oriented community. I was just going to ask you about how how do you see this as being distinct from cohorts-based courses? They're super similar. They're, they're neighbors. So there's a spectrum. I, I, I think it's like useful books is the highest scale, least personalization. And then the, the opposite is like coaching, consulting, training, where like you're super personalized below scale. Then in between as neighbors, you've got uh, outcome-oriented communities and cohort-based courses. And to me, it, the dividing line is, is whether your group is going to travel from the same place and at the same speed. So if you're starting... If you say, uh, okay. I'm setting up a cohort-based course to help you bootstrap a business, then in my opinion, you are lying because... <laughs> People travel at really different <laughs> speeds. And, and how are you going to... You gather everyone together. I did one call uh, about like YouTube, right? It's like, oh, I guess I should learn about YouTube from someone who's done it successfully. And uh, he set it up as a cohort-based course. And there's like hours and hours of classes each week. And it drove me bananas because we get in there and some people are like, but how do I use 
who's a webcam? And other people are like, uh, oh God. I'm, I'm really hitting a wall at 250,000 subscribers. What do I do next? And it's like, no matter what any given session was about, like 90% of the group hated it because it wasn't for them because everyone's coming from yeah. different places and moving at different speeds. But what a mishmash of like customer segments too. It's like those those people should not be in the same group. Exactly. I, I talked to the uh, the founder and he he's sort of like, yeah, we originally had this really tight scope. He was selling it for like between a thousand to five thousand dollars per ticket. It's like we had this really tight scope, but then so many people wanted in. We we just kept saying yes, and now we've got kind of a mess to deal with. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I, I don't know what lessons he's learned from that. Well, I was a part of his. I mean, he did make like two million dollars or something off that one cohort course. He can, he can afford to figure it out. Exactly. But to me, as a creator, that that's not the way I want to engage with my customers. I, I don't want like half of any group to be feeling like they're being left behind or ignored or dealing with boring stuff. I, I want to be able to deliver a really great experience mm-hmm. to everyone. And so the outcome-oriented community is more like people progress at their own pace, you know, on a shared journey. But then along the way, there might be uh, cohort-based courses that are narrower that are about specific topics. So mm-hmm. what I think could have happened on mm-hmm. YouTube is like if it was an outcome-oriented community, but then he's like, okay, once you've got a thousand subscribers, like you should really sign up for this course, which is about whatever optimizing optimizing your categories. Yeah. Like when you're starting out, you should sign up for this mini course that's a week long, which is about ideation and coming up with great ideas or script writing or if you need it. It's like, and some of them could just be info products, like maybe to set up good uh, lighting and equipment. You really don't need a course; you need like a PDF with the answer. Like, and, and so the outcome-oriented community is a baseline. It lets you solve all these little problems along the way. Yeah, using the tool that is best suited to that particular problem. It might be software. It might be productized consulting. It might be a partner organization. It might be a list of links. It might be a subcourse. Uh, and that that way, it's just like a medium, a, 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 a miss matched medium is that what i'm trying to say of like trying to use cohort based course to solve all these problems that it's really just like not the right tool for i encountered this when you first did that video and, and wrote about it and i, I love the idea and, and now that you're talking you're fleshing it out a little more i'm i'm super into this idea um because what it sounds like is like you know look anything anybody going on a journey like this it's a long journey and you need traveling companions but you also need to be met at wherever you are on the journey and if you try to use, you know, if you've got a hammer, everything's a nail. And if you try to use the same course for every single person who has the same goal, you're ignoring where they are on the path to the goal. That's what it sounds like you're saying. I mean, if anyone wants to help me, uh, you know, with like reviewing the draft and testing these ideas, just email me or track me down and I'll, I'll, I'll get you on the list. But it's, uh, it's Rob at RobFitz.com if anyone else wants on it. Just email me. Um, the... I think about like the Camino Santiago. So the Camino Santiago is a, a hiking trail, 800 kilometers long, in uh, you know across Spain. 300,000 people per year do that walk, which is crazy. Um, at least 100 kilometers of it. It's crazy. I was literally yeah. just looking at doing this walk. <laughs> it's, 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 it's weird growing, timing. Up until COVID, it was growing at uh, 10% per year. So they were adding an extra 30,000 uh, pilgrims per year. And you think about that. That's like a pretty intense journey. Like imagine 300,000 people per year just like going to a random spot in the wilderness and just like walking 100 to 800 kilometers. There, there's zero chance, right? But they've set up a system. Like so uh, throughout the whole trail... Uh, you always know that at the end of each day's walk, there's going to be a hostel with cheap beds, warm meals, and other hikers who are celebrating their progress. So even if you don't know them personally, it's creating these, these little pockets of critical mass. Um, if you need supplies, you can get them. Mm. They, 
they get people through, not by going rah, 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 you can do it, but by building a system such that every hiker always knows where they're ultimately going, where they're going at the end of today. And when they get there at the end of each day, Mm -hmm. that is rewarded. And and their action is incentivized because if you don't get out of bed in the morning and start walking, by the time you show up at the hostel, all the beds are gone. And then you're sleeping outside or you're walking into town an extra 15K. Um, and to me, that's like that, mm-hmm. that's the system design mentality of building an outcome-oriented community. It's not like I will solve every problem for every person all the time. It's not like I will get you hyped up. It's like, hold on, like you're all trying to go on the same journey. What system of support can I build yeah. such that you are more motivated to do the work you need to do, to change your behavior in the right way? You don't get lost. You, you, you don't fall off the trail. Like uh, That's what it's all about. And then obviously there's some nuts and bolts to implement it online, but that's a, that's a solvable problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am super loving this idea. So I'm so glad you laid that out. Have, by the way, have you done uh, the Camino? I, I haven't. No, my, my girlfriend, Teresa, has. has the, she's got her little passport. Like twice a day, you also have to check in and you, you like get little passport stamps and people are like, woo, look what I got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I really dig this idea because it, it's it's you're speaking to something that I have... Uh, you're making explicit a problem that was sort of in the back of my mind all along for several years now, which is like, okay, I want to build, you know, you want to help somebody. And then you look at it, you say, okay, great, I guess we're going to build this. But then inevitably, like we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, my brain starts to go to all the other things that this person needs and along the way. And I was like, how do you facilitate that? I can't build like 14 businesses at once. Um, But this idea seems like a really interesting structure to be able to not only help uh help whoever you're trying to help along their journey but then also you know potentially for people like you and me uh give us a, that outlet for the ongoing creativity and discovery like oh okay what's that next thing i can create to facilitate this journey it, it, it lets you build incrementally toward a long-term advantage like when i was talking about the moat that these big textbook publishers have you can sort of build toward that uh, as an indiepreneur or as a, a small business or a social enterprise or whoever because you start with the basic journey of accountability and follow through. And then you go, oh, this is a sharp problem. Let me add something for it. You spend a month or two, you add that piece. Then that piece is done, right? That hostel mm-hmm. is built on the trail and everyone gets to benefit from it forever. And then you go, okay, what's the next problem? You add another piece. And incrementally, you're building a substantial advantage and, and, and defensible mode and value proposition that's very hard for someone else to just come in and replicate. It makes total sense. It also it reminds me of um, one framework for sort of thinking about problem finding and problem framing and, and that whole part of the game um, that I've really enjoyed is the jobs to be done framework. And one of the things I like, one of the ways I have seen that framework presented, and I don't think it's the best <laughs> described framework out there in terms of making it actually like actionable and useful. It's, it's a good idea, but a lot of people kind of, it's hard to get your hands around. Uh, but one of the, one of the ideas that I've seen that communicated it well was like basically a sequence of hill climbs, right? It's like, oh, okay, what's the next peak? Then what's the next peak? What's the next peak? And, and when you build a product, you're thinking about, okay, how do I take you from, you know, starting point a to like if you're climbing Everest, like how do I get you to base camp? Right? That's like that's the first segment. And then you can think about okay, you're at base camp, then what? And then if you think about that long customer journey you're describing, there are all these sub segments and you can be more intentional, kind of like you're pointing out, about not only choosing your starting segment, but then you can build out pieces from there. Absolutely. I, I love it as a as a business model. And it, to me, it feels so honest. Because I feel like at each step of the journey, I'm able to deliver the best solution in the least expensive way. Because I'm not being burdened by a ton of unnecessary overhead. 
like the, the basic overhead is just like running the community and a few live events. And it's like, it's cheap. The, and, and I'm not yep. selling like an expensive cohort based course for something that could have been a cheap ebook, right? But then it still allows for this price segmentation where if someone, like within our author's community, our author's community right now is $20 a month, very inexpensive. Some of our members mm-hmm. have chosen to spend $10,000 on a book coach, editor, or ghostwriting service. Right? So we are not capturing that value. Mm-hmm. But that's showing that like for them, like mm-hmm. the journey from goal to finished book is worth, call it 20 grand. Uh, we are taking like 1% mm-hmm. of that and, or less. And I actually feel really good mm-hmm. about that. Uh, over time, we can... But we could over time start to price segments. So the people who want to spend that much, we can say like, we have the best ghostwriter. We have vetted them. They are incredible. Mm -hmm. They're going to treat you right. And and that person would give Mm -hmm. us a a commission as the the recommender. Uh, And no one else would be forced to pay extra just because we've offered that to someone, right? So it feels very honest to me while still being able to uh, price segment and capture value where, where, where that's what your members want and that's what's appropriate for them. What you just said really resonates with me because it, I think back to what I loved about my first company, which was an open source company. So we did a monetized open source play. And one of the things I really loved about it was the ability to provide value and meet people where they were according to the resources they had. So if you didn't have the money to spend, you could just do the open source stuff and it was all free and we had a great community. Um, and you know, we had, we really built like seriously invested in that community and it was great. And then there was also like we started adding, you know, tiers because there was people, there were people where, you know, it was like, okay, we're going to do a, you know, you're, this person wanted, they wanted to spend $10,000 on a like two day, you know, deep dive thing that solved their specific problem. And you're like, okay, great. Everybody won there. And I loved that ability to provide help to people at whatever their set of means and opportunities and needs were. So that's a, I had never thought about how to translate that idea beyond this, but it makes total sense with what you're saying. I, I, I dig that. One of the like the, the the book criticisms that drives me crazy is when people go, uh, "Oh, it could have been a blog post." And the reason it drives me crazy is like one, I know they're wrong because like I tried to write them all as blog posts first, and, but like the reason they ended up as books is because like it, it didn't fit, or people would read the blog post or hear the idea, and they'd go, "Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more." And, and at a certain point, it's like. Yeah, that is the size it wants to become. Like, I never start a book with a target word count, mm-hmm. and if I could get it done in a thousand words, then I'd say, "Oh, mm-hmm. awesome! This is the idea. This idea is a blog post, not a book." Like, totally fine. I- I'm not trying to find artificial ways to capture value, <laughs> and so that's that like, I don't know. It- it- I like that. Like, start from community, and then like, oh, this needs to be a course. Ooh, this needs to be SaaS. Oh, this should be a productized service. It's like, and then it's just, mm-hmm. do we do it? ourselves? Do we do it first? Mm-hmm. Do we do it later? Do we partner with someone else to do it? This, I think we've done a, you've done a really nice job uh, outlining this model. And I think people are going to be pretty compelled by this. Um, what I'm curious about, because I think a lot of people listening to this are going to go, wow, okay, Rob, you, you sold me. Like I'm, I'm buying into this idea of an outcome-oriented community and everything you just described. Uh, but take me back to the point where you and Devin had that. I'm, I'm assuming there was some moment where the two of you sat down, looked at each other and were like, okay, man, 10 years. Are you in? (laughs) Like, how, talk to me about that. Like, how did you get to the point of saying we are willing to commit 10 years of our lives, next decade of our lives to X? So, Devin and I both work on other stuff that pays the bills. So, Devin is a a venture capitalist. His previous company just raised 85 million to prepare for their IPO. 
Uh, he works a couple of days a week as a VC. You know, he does fine for himself. Uh, he, he's, you know, whatever. His his career is sorted. Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't want to be a five day a week VC. He wants to be a two day a week VC. That's like the amount he likes it. Uh, okay. I like writing books and building dumb software products that nobody uses. You know, or like games and just like building things for their own sake. Uh, and but I only want to do that. Like you know, for me, it's more like the first half of each day rather than like a certain number of days a week. But again, it's about half time. So there's this other like unallocated chunk in both of our schedules. So I think if you'd asked either of us, are you willing to commit all of your time for 10 years? It would have been an instant no from both of us. But the idea of like, are Mm. you guys willing to fill up the half of your schedule that's unallocated by the other things you care about? And are you willing to put a long-term commitment on that half. For us, that mm-hmm. felt very comfortable and very exciting, I would even say, because it allowed us to go after a type of opportunity and a type of business and to think long-term in a way that we've both been missing for quite a few years in our career. Mm-hmm. And, and so we saw it as, a, as an option or an opportunity more so than a constraint, but that was because we understood our constraint of like, it's, it's halftime. And also that we had the mm-hmm. willingness to look at ideas in the cold light of day and say, actually, this does not fit that constraint. <laughs> and truthfully, like we've still made huge mistakes. I, I went through a, a deep period of stress and anxiety because for good reasons, like very exciting reasons, Devin went on paternity leave. He had a second kid. And we had this like the business worked great halftime when it was both of us. But we didn't have the systems and the structure yeah. and all of that in place to handle a founder disappearing. Uh, and he, he disappeared with my blessings. I'm not saying like, you know, any, any, no, no, no one is the victim here. Yeah, he, it's not like he ghosted you. But like getting in there, I was like, oh, wow, we do not have these systems in place to uh, achieve this value or this virtue that we, we've chosen. And so the consequence was there were quite a few months where like I was working way more than I wanted to or was supposed to. And I was feeling way more stress and way more anxiety and all of this. Um, and we're working through it now. Mm-hmm. And it, like, how are you going to find these problems until you bump into these problems? It's part of like the incrementalism around ops and team and culture and all this stuff. But I, I'm just clarifying that to say like, it's easy for me to say like, yeah, look how easy it was. And I'm just clarifying this like that was our goal. But like there was a lot of the messy middle where we were suffering the pain and not yeah. living up to that like cultural value that we had uh, set as an aspiration. But we're, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. It's starting to feel great. I love a real example like that of applying mm-hmm. the model we were we were talking about earlier. And, you know, it's, it is something, you know, in a former conversation, you and I were talking about, uh, I think, basically idea selection. And and one of the things we talked about of, of choosing, basically choosing your customer, like you said earlier, was, you know, I think, I think the three things were one was like, do I like this person? <laughs> like, two was, uh, and do I care about this problem? Do I want to think about this every day for, a long time. And then two, I think was, uh, can I reach them? And then three was, like, <laughs> they spend money to solve problems. Yeah, pretty sensible. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing, put it that way. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really curious about, because I correct me if I'm wrong, you and Devin have worked together for a long time, right? Yeah, we were co-founders of the YC company. And we went to university together as well. We lived together in university. Uh, and so we've, we've done a bunch of companies together. Three like full companies, plus a bunch of side projects and experiments. I tallied it up. We we had this funny setup for like four or five years 
where we we basically said like we'll both work on our own projects, but we each own half of each other's projects automatically. So if anything works, we both get like half the effort because <laughs> we thought it was better to be twice as likely to get half as rich. Uh, then like one of us gets all of it and one of us gets nothing. And I tallied it up the other day. And over those four years, we shared a uh, 400 grand in profit from like little side projects and experiments. And we've, we've now got a, well, we got a company out of it, which is where we're now like co-founders in. That's the thing for authors. And that's doing about 10,000 a month right now. And we've got a uh, 12,000 a month in passive income from like IP and books that we created during that time. So it's like 400 grand in pocket and 22 K uh, MRR, some active, some passive. And it's like good results from a little collab, right? And it was really fun and really fluid. So yeah, yeah no. that was possible because we had this long history of working together and really deep trust. And also like similar worldviews about time and money. Because <laughs> it wouldn't have worked with mm. the co-founders I mentioned before where we had like... I respected them tremendously. They're very honest. They're very good at what they do. But we just had different uh, worldviews about, about money. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like you, you mentioned that you had the four co-founders and one was all about scale and one was all about impact and, and that kind of thing. You know, one of the things I'm curious about is how do you make a partnership work? Um, you know, because it's it's co-founders, business partners, whatever you want to call it, it's a thing. And it can be amazing, but it can also be it can also be hell. Uh, and I'm curious what what if there's anything any like kind of non-obvious lessons you know that I'm not going to find by googling mm-hmm. from your experience of like how did you you, you know you and Devna work together 15 years now longer maybe yeah how do you make that work so the the little uh goals so like freedom reliability scale constraints uh uh resources that's something that's a conversation i have with uh all business partners and also all employees because that, that mm. helps us understand like where we need to get to. It often goes unspoken and one person's assuming you're going to raise VC and shoot for the moon and the other one's assuming that they're going to be able to pay their rent. And you really want to have that... Con- and so I like that little... Um, and I do it with employees as well because I think it's always so interesting. Um, we hired a friend recently, uh, Louise, and it, she was quitting a job that paid her twice as much to join our team. And that's fascinating, right? Uh, and, and so I want to know why. Yeah. So it's like, hey, like, help me understand. Like, why are you even considering this? Why is this worth giving up a better paid job? Like, you know. And, and we go through the little triangle exercise of the the constraints, you know, goals, all that. And it turns out that, like, yeah, right now she's getting paid twice as much as the other job, but she was already as far as she could get in that career path, and so. She was in a place where right now, like she could afford to take the hit and she wanted to get into an industry and ideally a business where she felt like each year she was doing better than she was doing the year before. And she was putting down roots and that that her career was on a growth path instead of uh, on a plateau. And when I hear that, like you can imagine you go, oh, like, okay, I understand the sort of coaching and training program that I should put you on to help you feel like that's happening. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the same mentality mm-hmm. of the outcome-oriented community. It's like once you know someone's goals and you know where they're at, it's like you can help them move forward. And for as long as they're moving forward, they're going to feel so excited to be a part of that thing. And as soon as you're taking their time and they feel like they're no longer moving forward, they're going to be churning or quitting. Uh, and so that helps a lot there. With co-founders, another thing I do is um, I'm wildly against... Uh, over optimizing in a negotiation. So often people are like excited or you can sell the dream and you can negotiate pretty hard. But if it's a business partner, you need them to be intrinsically motivated and small imbalances 
in, in perceived fairness. It, it, it's like the bit of a gravel in your shoe. And the longer you go, the worse it feels, right? And at a certain point, you're just like, I can't deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a small thing on any given step, but it yep. adds up. And, and things like uh, how many hours are we putting in? Like what happens if one of us wants to quit? Um, I, I do it also with... I spent a while exploring really wacky like uh, revenue and profit share uh, structures with with a, a wide range of not just business partners but also team members. And the way we always did it is we would make a spreadsheet of uh, like a financial model, a simple one, and then we would brainstorm as many horrific edge cases as we could come up with. It's like, all right, like you marry my sister, like your house burns down, World War Three starts, <laughs> like you become a, a TikTok star and don't need the money anymore. Like, like, and, and then we, we like run all the scenarios through the model and we're like, which of these would make us feel like we were being cheated or screwed? Like, which of these would feel bad if, if this mm-hmm. happens? And it's kind of a fun and silly exercise because you're, you're playing like, you know, future Imagineer, but. It's really useful, and what it does is it, it it teases out these perverse and unintentional incentives within the financial model. It's like because like if you're like yeah you got a profit mm-hmm. share, well of course they're going to want to raise prices and grow unsustainably because they're they're like it's like oh wow yeah I completely incentivize short term like burn the bridges behavior there. Mm-hmm. We do that for like contracts and, and structures. We do the values thing for like growth and ongoing motivation. And then the other thing is um, just trying to get out in front of problems like proactively. So uh, on our team now, there's three partners and uh, two other like full-time team members. And everyone has a one-on-one every week with everyone pretty much, or at least like each of the partners okay. has a one-on-one with the other four people. Um, so and as okay. the team grows, like, it's not going to be 100% possible with everyone forever. But just adding those one-on-ones has been so huge. And and they're just like coaching calls. It's like, what's on your mind? Like, what else? What's your top priority? What's been stressing you out? Just just talking through that. It's like, hey, you know, last time we talked, you said money wasn't, wasn't a big deal and that you were comfortable. Is that still the case? Has anything changed? Like, you know, how are the timelines looking? Mm-hmm. Because these are all moving targets, right? Someone, someone's like about to have a baby, and suddenly their whole worldview about money and time flips on its head. Like, and and so you, I've seen a lot of teams where I, I did this myself at the the education uh, agency. We did an amazing job of understanding each other at the beginning, but then we never updated it over time. So three mm. years later, we were completely out of sync with each yep. other. We were all surprised. We're like, we talked about this. Why yep. is everything different? It's like, yep. well, because. You know, time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, change. So, happens. So that, that's what I'm doing, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have had friendships blow up over uh, bad work relationships, but that doesn't bother me because I think that the work relationship revealed a problem in the friendship rather than the fact that the work relationship mm. uh, destroyed an otherwise good friendship. We just hadn't discovered the problem yet, but we would have right, discovered right. it eventually. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and then you then there's the inevitable. Okay, like how yeah. can we move through this? How do we move through this? And it, it honestly reminds me a lot of like um, there was a, a friend of mine who's a relationship coach, and uh, he recommended. In, in I, I went to him for some advice during in my last relationship, and he's like, "Are you doing your weekly check in?" I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You know, how you do like one on ones with people you work with, right?" I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Why aren't you doing that with your girlfriend?" I was like, 
<laughs> oh yeah, it's really. <laughs> <You're> like, oh, <laughs> that's a really good idea. Um, but it's, it's that same idea. You're like, yeah, if we're not yeah. staying up to date on this stuff, it's all changing, and you can exactly. sneak up on you in a weird way. Um, well, Rob, this is a, we've covered a ton of ground. The last thing I want to ask you, and then we'll kind of close out with some rapid fire questions, is you know you you mentioned a term at the very early on in this conversation that I wanted to just hear how you think about, which is this idea of binding decisions. And we've we've talked about a bunch of different things in this conversation that are all probably binding decisions to most people, right? Business selection, idea, market, customer, uh, co-founder, etc. How do you think about binding decisions? I really value optionality. Uh, I, I, I am willing to sacrifice a lot of expected outcome or, or in order to maintain uh, high optionality. Uh, especially the ability to quit, the ability to change my mind, all of that. However, uh, if you maximize that, I, I like kept I kept incredible optionality for a lot of years. So I won't go into all the details because they get a bit weird. But like, I was unwilling to commit to anything, right? And I was like very upfront about that in every aspect of my life. And it also like removes a lot of options. It, it's a weird way where like if you take the preservation mm. of optionality too far, you, you end up removing things because a lot of great stuff requires making a choice and making a commitment and walking through a one-way door. <laughs> Simple example, I get yeah. a lot of pleasure from hosting dinner parties, poker nights, and board game nights. And that is really hard to do if you're not willing to commit to a city and an apartment and, and mm-hmm. like build a stable group of friends, right? <laughs> so it you can mm-hmm. organize a board game night when you are a digital nomad. It is possible. I have done it. It is really hard. It takes a lot of extra admin and busy work and garbage, right? If you make the decision to sacrifice your option of place, you get the benefit of like, it's usually the same people nearby and you just ping the list you pinged last week and they all come mm-hmm. over and they know where you live and it's really easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, the same could be said of a lot of stuff, of relationships, the businesses, of like what you work on or this and that. Um, like I'm about to take a... I mean, I, I need to actually raise a couple hundred grand for this because I want to buy... There's an old theater. I live in the... Uh, the Sub-Pyrenees Mountains in Northern Catalonia in a little farming village with 20 people. And the village at the bottom of our mountain, so like eight kilometers away, is uh, it used to be the largest uh, like live animal market in the Pyrenees. So it's where you go to buy like horses and farm animals and, and you know, all that stuff. And it was a huge deal. It like drove the economy of the region for a while. Now the town population, and this is the big town nearby, is 400. They have uh, three restaurants, which is pretty booming. Wow. Zero stores though. We're hoping they open a bakery soon. It'll be <laughs> nice to be able to buy bread. Uh, <laughs> but there's this old there's this old theater from wow. the uh, the 1890s, and it's been sitting idle because the the owners it hasn't been used right. It has no business after the animal uh, market collapsed in like the early 1900s, and, and it's just sitting idle. And we're we're in negotiations with like the town uh, mm. architects. We we want to buy it, rebuild it. Um, and it's like, man, mm-hmm. that is like hard committing to this mountain place, right? That's going to add mm-hmm. like substantial mm-hmm. like repair and renovation work, really anchoring ourselves here. And I'm super excited about it because the flip side of that, like it sucks when someone else takes away your choices. But I think it is a very mm-hmm. healthy thing to... First, if you're young, get your freedom. Like you got to feel it. You got to feel what it's like to have every choice. 
you know, freedom of time, freedom of place, freedom of emergency, mm-hmm. think about what you want, when you want, with who you want. Awesome. Definitely worth getting. But then after that, what you can start doing, uh, for me, it's what I thought I wanted, but it turned out to be a shallow way for me to live my life. And what I've done since then is I found myself gradually trading off pieces of my freedom and sacrificing pieces of the optionality in exchange for anchors that add something important to my life. You know, the dog, the house, the mm-hmm. commitment of place, yeah. the business, this and that. And uh, I'm finding it hugely meaningful. And, and that's been my like uh, personal transition over the last 10 years is, is like, which freedoms do I want to give away in exchange for something better? And this, this theater is the, the latest example. It's going to be such a fun project. I really hope that uh, I, I, I can get the money that I need to, uh, to rebuild this thing because it's going to be awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. No, I really appreciate you speaking to that. It reminded me as I was listening to you of uh, two two pieces that I would recommend highly to anybody thinking about this this set of questions, right? Of of choice and optionality and freedom and so forth. One, and I'll find the exact thing and link to it in the show notes. Was a was a piece by Mark Manson where he talked about you know things are only meaningful because we gave up other things to get them. Uh, and then uh, the the best, I would say, the most impactful book I have read lately, uh, and you may be familiar with this one, is called Four Thousand Weeks by I think his name's Oliver. Oh, God, I can't remember his full name, but the book Four Thousand Weeks is about exactly this, and it, it it blew my mind. I read it about a month ago. So good, I immediately started rereading it as soon as I finished it. Um, and I just want to put that out there for people as a recommendation because it it really, in a beautiful way, confronts this question of optionality, choice, limited time, and and meaning. Um, so I'm curious if you've come across any of those or if those spoke to you as well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reading 4,000 Weeks uh, as we speak. I can't actually see the book, but I, I know it's here somewhere. I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I, I wrote a blog post about it the other day, about how like much I've been enjoying it. And yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's lovely. It's charming. I love the phrase. I can't remember the exact word he is, but he, he's like... Uh, He's like, you're not being forced to like give up a bunch of things. You're being presented with like a, a buffet of exquisite options and you get to take your choice, right? Like no, no one goes to a buffet and goes, yep, damn, yep. all these things I can't eat. They go, hey, thank goodness I have so many things to choose from. <laughs> and it's, it's funny we don't see our life choices on time like that. <laughs> damn it, who gave me steak and crab legs? This is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have nearly enough room to enjoy both of these. Um, awesome. Well, Rob, let's go ahead and close out here with a couple of rapid fire questions. These are short questions. Uh, answer in as few or as long as you want to take them. But uh, they're just kind of ra- random fun ones I like to ask people. Um, and you can take it wherever you want to take it. All right. I'm, I'm prepared. Okay. You're so prepared. Uh, so first thing is, what is a quote or a saying that's important to you, meaningful to you, that you refer back to often? And, and what about it? Uh, I mean, for living, there's a Hemingway quote uh, from uh, A Movable Feast. He goes, uh, uh, we ate well and cheaply and drank well and cheaply and slept warm and well together. And uh, I love that. It's sort of a good life, right? That's awesome. That is awesome. What would you say you know best? The underlying uh, concept of all my work has been to to understand other people's uh, worldviews and and day-to-day experiences. And so customer development is like, how do you understand not what customers say they want, but what, what what's actually holding them back? And sometimes they don't even know how to describe it, right? And, and so it's this exploratory discovery, observational thing. So I, I, I like that. The same was true with my second book about education design. It's like students are saying, they're hearing the words, 
but they're not learning what I'm trying to say. Like they're not able to act on it. Like why not? What is going on in their head and their psyche? And like, what am I failing to unhook or like, and so, and then also write useful books. It's like, all right, I'm putting the words down. Why are readers not able to do it? You know, you read a book about chess and you don't get any better at chess. And I, I think what I've been able to, like what I'm good at is to go into those things quite humbly and be like, all right, there's something I know, or there's something I think is valuable. Mm-hmm. But for it to take root, it needs to take root in like other people's complicated brains and lives and all of this. And I go in and I go like, all right, I have no agenda. Let me just try to understand like what's going on in your head so that I can figure out how to package this idea or product or thing such that it can, it, it, it can land. So that's like the baseline skill. And then the other piece that's, that's been important for me is just, just writing. Writing is clearly my anchor habit. Um, if I don't write, I tend to have bad days. So even starting the day with like daily pages mm. with a brain dump, doing like writing about just a topic I'm fascinated by, I want to learn. It doesn't even matter if I send... I, I, I've written like five books that I just threw away at, at manuscript stage. Because I was like, that was fun. No, I don't care enough about it to like take this to completion. But like, glad, glad I spent a few months on it. Uh, totally fine. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think I'm quite good at that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like good at, at carving out the space for deep work. What I'm bad at is what everyone else is good at, which is like mm-hmm. answering the emails and responding to the no- notifications. I once... Uh, <laughs> my email once broke for three... And it took me three weeks to notice that I wasn't receiving emails... <laughs> like, how do you live like this? How did you not see my message? I'm like, how have you not written books? Like, you gotta choose. Like, either I can see your text notifications or I can finish books. Is one or the other. So, <laughs> that is so funny to me. Oh man! You know, the other thing you strike, just reflecting back, you that you just you strike me as being really good at is walking away from sunk costs. Like better than most people I've come across. Like I know a lot of people who would really struggle to do what you just described doing pretty easily. Of like, yep, spend a few months on that. Don't want to take it any farther. I'm good. Um, like walking away from some cost is such a thing, especially back to the optionality choice thing. Is there? Is do you do you? Is that resonate with your experience or? I mean, I definitely waited way too long to kill my first company. So we should have shut down at least a year earlier than we did. And the consequence of that was massive burnout and losing mm. all of my personal savings. Right, because I was trying to. Oh, one more week, I'll cover payroll. One more week, don't tell the investors we're we're failing. And so I think that's made yep. me uh, a, a bit more uh, optimistic about the like, or aware of the benefits of walking away from a thing rather than just like riding down the sinking ship till you know mm. <laughs> till the very end. <laughs> that that's well said. Well said. All right, last question is uh, you know, given everything we've talked about. Is there either, you know, a, a, if you were going to give a homework assignment or a question you would have the listener do or start asking themselves? Man, it's so context dependent, huh? I would say that for me, it comes out of the, the daily pages or the daily writing. And the question that's implied there is what thoughts are holding my attention hostage? Like what thoughts are on my mind that that I haven't necessarily chosen as priorities, but they're just there. And so part of the purpose of the and I also have a coach, I have ADHD, I'm like a super anxious, high strung person. So like once a week I talk to the coach, most days I do uh, daily pages. And a lot of the purpose of those conversations is just like what's on my mind that's not there by choice? And can I get it out of my mind so that I can load the things on my mind like intentionally? 
and I find like the brain dump of daily pages. And if anyone doesn't know, all you do is just start writing and don't stop. And often my pages start with like, blah, blah, blah. I feel awful today. I did not sleep. Oh, what about this email I haven't sent? And, and like, just as I'm going, like the, these things get teased out that I wasn't even aware I was thinking of. And as I'm writing them, I like shape up like a little. So I, I write my pages in like a two third column. And then beside it, there's like a one third column of like to do's and, and tasks. So as I'm brain dumping, these, these like weird like attention hostage holders are like getting pulled out of my attention and turned into little task items, which can then go into a system or get delegated or get done or get intentionally ignored and deprioritized. So I guess that would be my question is like, what's holding your attention hostage or what what's on your mind that you don't want there? Uh, and for me, the way I tease that out is uh, either talking to a coach or, or, or doing a brain dump, daily pages stuff. But you know, maybe that's helpful. <laughs> no, I'm I'm sitting here laughing because I do literally the exact same thing. I literally every morning pull out my iPad and after I meditate, I, I brain dump in a, a text editor, and I, I just have <laughs> one third screen split. And as all the stuff goes, up, I literally just move it from the left one to the right one. So I'm just sitting here laughing like. We literally did the exact same thing. That's where there was something else I was going to add on to that. I don't. I don't even know what it was. Oh yeah, I, I was just going to say. So like for me, I I used to do it first first thing, but now I do it between my writing and my uh, and my business work. So what I do is like for me, the most important way for me mm. to spend my time, like if I'm on my deathbed, the time I'll be happy about was the time I spent writing, uh, and some other things, of course. Uh, but mm. like, there's this old finance concept of pay yourself sure. first. So like the first hour of your day or whatever of your working day, you give to your own top priority. So for me, that's writing. So I do that first before I started like dealing with the dramas of the day. And then I do the pages and the brain dump is my like transition mm -hmm. ritual into like everything else I need to deal with my like my business, my email, my messages. But that means I don't need to check anything or think about anything. I can just like wake up and be like, yeah, straight into that writing. So for for me that works. Again, I'm laughing. We've independently evolved to like the exact same thing because I, I and I actually wrote a I wrote a tiny little piece about this like two week, two three weeks ago where I, I literally wrote in finance in personal finance everyone says you know pay yourself first and I said I think the equivalent rule in creativity is engage your own ideas first. Like if first thing in the day like give your give your first attention to your stuff and then like don't worry Twitter will still be there in four hours. <laughs> Like the, the the challenge I have is I get too happy and then I don't want to I don't want to stop. I'm like I'm doing what I was put on this earth to do. Why would I go do email now? And, and so I'm like working yeah. to do less deep work. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how common this problem is, but I think it's actually pretty common for creative types. Uh, the way that I've seen it, the way I'm trying to handle that right now, by the way, is is. Uh, I, I another guy who's on the podcast who you might really enjoy his material um, if you're not familiar. His name's David Cadavy. Um, he wrote a book called. He's written a couple, but his most recent one is called Mind Management, Not Time Management. Or that's probably the one he's best known for right now. And his whole thing is about kind of managing mental and creative mind states. Uh, if you're trying to do ongoing creative work that doesn't have concrete deadlines, like, <laughs> hey, Rob, when's the book done? You're like, I don't know right now. <laughs> How do you deal with that? How do you be productive in that way? And it's a super good book. And what I, one of the things that's super useful about this specifically, and for the listener, I'll link to the, um, the episode with David. Uh, so you can check that out if you want. Uh, is he talks about kind of these different mind states and you figure out like what parts of the day and the week do the different mind states work best for you. And so like one of those mind states is, I, I don't remember what he calls it, but I just call it like admin. 
right? And so there's just like the admin stuff. And I figured out like, okay, you know, by about between 3 and 5 p.m., I'm in admin mode. Like I have burned my creative energy and I can do whatever. Um, but just sort of thinking about that kind of chunking of your your week and, and jump all the way back to time. Um, anyways, that, that seems to be a way that it's working for me. I, I knew one super productive founder who saved all of his email for what he called hangover day. And <laughs> he's just like, he's like, he's like, yeah, every Friday I'm just so hungover. I just save all my email and just like, do it, you know, and then the rest of the rest of my week, I can do my real work. I tried it once. I'm like, that does not work for me. That is negative email productivity, even yeah, worse yeah. than my baseline. For sure. For sure. Well, Rob, this has been an absolute pleasure. Super fun jamming with you. Uh, is there any final things you'd like to leave the listener with? And, and where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at robfitz.com. R-O-B-F-I-T-Z. All of my uh, my my new messy ideas in progress are there. Uh, and that's how uh, that's how Andrew and I met. It's hanging out on that site. We do little you know chit-chats and, and questions and all that. And... Now there's nothing I can leave it with except that uh, you know it's super fun, but uh, you got to carve your own path, right? Because there's a uh, like the the and the, it's hard, it's hard, but it, it's worth it, and you know you, you'll enjoy it and you'll love it. And the the other thing is just uh, this is maybe more for the the indie folks or the the folks at the beginning of the career. It's like it's really easy to get super obsessed with your current company, especially if it's your first company or your first big project inside a larger business, and. and and a lot of the optimizations that you'll do if you're only thinking about one company are actually really short-sighted when you think about your entire company career, like entrepreneurial career. And an example for me was uh, keeping that first company going way too long and burning through all my savings and my mental health. It would have been way better to shut that one down earlier to take that hit because then like, I, I would have had a much like quicker you know, journey on the rest of my career. So if you think of uh, entrepreneurship as a career, not a company, like, you'll make much healthier decisions for yourself. Beautiful place to leave it. Well, Rob, again, a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. And for the listener, we'll link to all this in the show notes. And uh, please go check out Rob's stuff. It'll really add a lot to your journey. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.